You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to uh, week number three of Heaven and Hell and Everything in Between. I'm your host on this journey. My name is David, and we are going to be carrying on. So let me begin tonight uh, by situating our conversation in Scripture. First John chapter 3, we read, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Lord Jesus, we come before you realizing we are completely dependent upon you. We are so thankful for the life into which you have invited us. And tonight, as we explore all sorts of mysteries, we pray that um, you would grant us a charitable heart, a heart filled with your love, and that we would explore the terrain of, of the mystery of salvation. And so we pray that you would guide our conversation tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so tonight um, we are on week three. Now, just to give you an idea where we've been on this journey, <laughs> we began by an exploration of heaven, and we looked at the top nine characteristics of heaven. Last week, we took a look at hell. And in doing so, we explored the logic of hell, but, off, but also some differing perspectives about envisioning hell. Now, here's the thing. We're only two weeks in. And the number of emails that I've been getting. <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's interesting. Um, it's, it's kind of like a hydra. Right? You, you answer one question and two more questions show up. And with this class, this is what happened last time. For every question that we address, I guarantee you five more will pop up. It's just the way it is because we are, as I was saying, we are dealing um, with mystery. And there's a lot of things that we're, we're speculating because to be honest, Scripture isn't that clear on things, on, on some of these things. The other thing that's happened in these last two weeks is people have approached me and said, okay, thanks, thanks for giving us these different perspectives, David. What do you think? What do you think? Well, that's a secret. Uh, <laughs> actually, as I teach, I will tell you, I will give you hints of what I don't agree with, okay? Uh, but I'm also going to leave it open for you to explore more on your own. And truth be told, um, I don't always land hard on one perspective or another. Now, there's reasons for this. One of the reasons is my history background, is I can, I can look at the, the different perspectives that people bring to the table and when these ideas emerged. And I, I'm a bit of a lay historian. I like history. And so I'm always looking at when ideas emerge and why they emerge and why theology develops. So that's one thing. The other thing is my faith background. I didn't grow up in the church. Some of you grew up as Catholics and you converted and you went to Baptist churches and, and you have a you know, very clear view on, on certain things. And it was interesting, um, uh, my dear colleague, Pastor Brad, and I were talking about the topic that we're going to be looking at tonight. 
And uh, we're just reminiscing the fact, because Brad grew up in the church, and I didn't grow up in the church. And for me, it's like, oh, this could make sense. And Brad's like, no, it doesn't. But, it, you know, just from different, uh, different backgrounds. And the other thing is just my personality. Part of my personality is that I tend to be able to look at different sides of an argument. Uh, okay, right? So anyhow, hopefully when all is said and done, what really, really matters will be clear. <laughs> um, and that's our approach in this class. But there will be lots of questions after tonight, I guarantee you. Um, but I don't know if it helps for you to know, but next week, you'll have even more questions. Um, next week, oh yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, but hopefully along the way, what's going to happen is that you and I are going to be equipped to think theologically about things that matter. So when people ask you these questions, you're able to think through these questions theologically. And I find that for a lot of Christians, this is where we struggle. We really do. So... Um, as we get going tonight, I'm going to ask you a personal question. And uh, you, it's a personal question, but I want you to just take a few moments to discuss it around the table. Um, and it does set us up for what we're going to be looking at tonight. And here's a question. It's an awkward question. I'm not going to give you a lot of time for this, but just, just for a few minutes. How ready are you to meet Jesus? I mean, saying, you know, again, we talk about, the, oh, Lord, you know, we, we sing, Lord, you know, when we see you there, you know, better is one day in your course, better is one day a thousand. And it's like, how, but are you ready to meet Jesus? And what excites you about this? And what makes you nervous? Okay, so those are fun questions. So I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to talk around your table. How ready are you to meet Jesus? What excites you? What makes you nervous? There we go. Okay, <laughs> I, you guys are a very uh, chatty bunch. I like this, yeah. Lots to talk about. So tonight, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at an important question. And it's this, is there anything in between the time we die and where we end up? Are there stops along the way? And if so, what are they? Is there scriptural evidence for these middle stages? So this question, though, is going to extend over two weeks because, again, as we answer these questions, you're going to be like, yeah, but what about, what about, yeah. And so we are going to be extending this over two weeks because next week we're going to be talking a lot about our soul. What is our soul? <laughs> is our soul different from our spirit? Is it... Does our soul go somewhere? Does our soul go to sleep? Um, what about this thing called in the Old Testament called Sheol? And what about Hades? And are these like middle point? Like these are actually really important questions. And so we're going to be exploring this more and more next week. Uh, but tonight what I thought we would do just for fun is I would like to spend a little bit of time kicking the tires on a controversial doctrine, and that is the doctrine of purgatory, yes. Now, tonight's gonna be, I think, interesting. I find it interesting. I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be a little frustrating. Um, but are you ready to go? Do you wanna just kick the tire at this? All right, we're safe, this is safe. We're just gonna kick the tire, just explore terrain, right? Okay, there's a fellow who's who a guy I really like is uh, a guy named um, uh, P.T. Forsyth, Scottish theologian. He once suggested that we Protestants overreacted to the doctrine of purgatory. He wrote, quote, We threw away too much when we threw purgatory clean out of doors. We threw out the baby with the dirty water of its bath. I guess it's the old way of saying throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But he then argues that Protestants need to maybe take a second look at purgatory. But that's a loaded word. 
So what do we mean by purgatory? Now, when I say the word purgatory, just shout out what are some words that come to mind? You guys, you write them. You have to write them quick. What are some words that come to mind? A holding tank. I like that, yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Reception area. Reception area. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Finishing school. Good, gee. Second chance. Place of the dead. A cash bailout? <laughs> that is so good. That's so good, yeah. Penance. Yes, okay, yeah, it's like some Catholic background people. Purification, yeah. Angie. Judgment. Okay. Black hole. Black hole. Wow. Well, okay. It took a turn there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, is it a positive word or a negative word or, or a bit of both? How many of you would say it's negative? Put up your hand. How many of you would say yeah, it's kind of positive? Yeah. It sounds better than hell. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Okay, so what are we talking about? Um, I, there is a show that I did like. At least I like the first few seasons, not the later seasons. And it's a show called The Good Place. And have you seen it? And it's it's a clever show. And it's it's a show about heaven. Maybe I won't give it away. Um, but there is in the show The Good Place, the purgatory. And purgatory in the good place is a place where everything is a bit bland. It's neither bad nor good. It's neither heaven nor hell. You can watch a movie at a home in purgatory, but you watch it on a VHS. <laughs> and the movies that you watch are all part two of sequels. <laughs> so there's Cannonball Run 2. <laughs> Home Alone 2, right? Um, there's magazines that you could read, but they're all about six years old. So everything's kind of bland and out of date. In Catholic theology, what is purgatory? Purgatory is an intermediate state after physical death in which some of those ultimately destined for heaven, must first undergo purification, purging, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Okay. So let me enter into this conversation about purgatory with two stories, one true and one fictional. True story. There's a fellow named Gary Black, Jr., and Gary Black was a professor of theology at Azusa Pacific University, and he was great friends, really good friends, with um, the uh, Christian theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard. How many of you have heard of Dallas Willard or have read him? Yeah, quite a few of you. Good. So, in fact, Gary Black was writing a book with Willard uh, in 2012 when Willard was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And Black was with Willard in his final days, and they spoke a lot about the afterlife. And at night, when Black stayed with Willard, Willard described hallway experiences in which he was meeting people between this life and eternity. And this is before he was on any kind of, he wasn't ministered to any drugs yet. This is what he was experiencing. Now, many Christians believe in the moment of death, we're going to be perfected in every aspect of our character. In a blink of an eye, we will be transformed. We'll know as we are known. But that idea of being instantly transformed troubled Willard deeply. Why? Because he said, well, if I'm going to be instantly transformed, then why bother working on my character in this life? And if you know Dallas Willard's writing, a lot of it is on spiritual formation and disciplines and different things about transformation. 
Instead, it seemed that people were content with the truth that all we really have to do to get into heaven is, is just, you know, we, we just, when we die, we experience what he calls a cosmic car wash. And this was puzzling to Willard. Because he says, on earth, God does not change us without our choice. We're part of this process of sanctification. We're transformed, but it's an interplay of God's grace and the work of the Spirit and the decisions we make in life. And also, in this life of ours, transformation is slow and gradual. And so Black summarizes Willard's concern by writing these words. He says, quote, If we've chosen not to have reconstructive surgery on our heart during our entire life on earth, why do we think God can or will at the end override our will and make us per and perfect our heart after death? Willard then asks another awkward question. Are we presently or even at the time of death the kind of people who can handle heaven? Can we handle? Is this, will the sun not be too bright? Willard thought that the vitality of life in heaven burns so bright that our eyes, if, if they're not prepared, could they even take in the glory of God? And he asked the question, if all of life is about continual growth and learning, will not eternity be the same? And if we're perfect, if we're perfected, will there be any room for us to grow and learn? Now these, I think, are good questions. They're very good questions. They're tough questions. Okay, so that's one story. The second story is a, is a, is a fictional story. And the story goes like this. It's a strange story about a cowboy. Um, and the story goes like this. He, he was a cowboy, mister, and he loved the land. He loved it so much that he made a woman out of dirt, and he married her. But when he kissed her, she disintegrated. Later at the funeral, when the preacher said, dust to dust, some people laughed, and the cowboy shot them. Hanging, he told the others, I'll be waiting for you in heaven with a gun. Okay, that's a weird story. But the whole idea that makes it so weird is the idea that somebody could be in heaven with a gun. Because you would expect in heaven there would be no malice, no hatred. And the idea is that if you make it into eternity, into eternal life, into heaven, or whatever you want to call it, new heavens, new earth, you ought to be free from any sinful tendency. So, these are the background stories to our conversation about purgatory. Uh, this is where the doctrine of purgatory comes in. And it deals with these sinful patterns in our lives. So, tonight what we're going to do, this is going to be so much fun. We're going to talk about purgatory for a bit. And if that wasn't exciting enough, why don't we take a crack at limbo? So I have a poll and we can all, no, not that kind of limbo, but the, the, there's an idea of limbo. I'm, you know, he's in limbo. What does that mean? Or other intermediate states. Sound like fun? Yeah? So let me name the elephant in the room. Purgatory. <laughs> As a good Protestant, purgatory is a fighting word, right? For 500 years, the doctrine of purgatory has been fought against tooth and nail by Protestants against Catholics. John Calvin, the leader of the Reformation, called purgatory the lie of the devil, for it tempted Christians to find salvation in other places than the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? Calvin says, therefore, we, we must cry out with a shout, not only of our voices, but of our throats and our lungs, that purgatory is a deadly fiction of Satan, which nullifies the cross of Christ, inflicts unbearable contempt upon God's mercy, and overturns and destroys our faith. For what means this purgatory of theirs, but that is satisfaction for sins is paid by the souls of the dead after, the de after, after death. Now we have to remember the context of Calvin's comments. 
In the medieval world, and leading up to the Reformation, was 1517, is when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg church door, beginning this thing called the Reformation, or Reformations. Um, the doctrine of purgatory was everywhere. And it was used primarily in the time of Luther as a way of making money, of raising money. We won't go into details about the story as much as I'd like to. Um, but the doctrine of purgatory was, was linked to the church's understanding of, of what is called the treasury of merit. So I have in your notes a diagram. And in the diagram, I show you a picture of the late medieval penitential cycles, whatever. I'll just explain what it means. This is, in the medieval world, this is how, how um, sin and forgiveness and eternity were understood. You have God. God ordains and presides over everything. He creates us, so you and I are born. And when we are born, we are born in original sin. We have original sin. And therefore, how do we deal with the original sin? We are, if you're in the Catholic Church, in the medieval world, you are baptized. And baptism removes the effects, most of the effects of original sin. But as we grow up, what happens? We invariably sin. And when we sin, what do we do? Well, that's where we need to confess. And so there is a sacrament of confession. You confess, and you confess to a priest, and the priest will absolve you of your sins, and yet call you to works of satisfaction, works of penance to make up for your sins. And this brings you back into the state of grace. So everything's good until you sin again. And so you need to do this regularly, and this is a cycle of life. We sin, we confess, we make up for these sins, we sin, we confess, we make up for our sins. But what happens if you're in the middle of it and you die? And you have all these sins that you haven't confessed. And yes, we get Jesus died for our sins, but there's still, there's, I mean, there's different kinds of sins. And there's some sins that still stick with us when we die. And so what happens when we die with these works of satisfaction incomplete? Well, you have to complete them because you're not ready for heaven. And so where do you complete, where do you work off these sins? Purgatory. Exactly. Now, you can do some things during your lifetime to lower the amount of time in purgatory, because the reality is, um, other than maybe Josh, most of us would be end up in purgatory, right? Yeah, some are, but then most of us will end up in purgatory. So, for example, if you went to the Wittenberg Church on um, all Saints Day and you visited all their holy items, all their relics, that would actually remove the amount of time you're in purgatory by 1,230,948 years. Okay? So, it, and, and, and then we can keep going about stuff like this. But anyhow, the idea in the, in the um, medieval understanding of purgatory is that there is a time period in which you have to work out your salvation in a way, you have to work off these sins. And um, there's still a consequence for your sins, and so you're going to experience the consequence of these sins for a time period until you are purged of the remaining sinfulness, and then you're finally ready for, heavy, for, for heaven. Now, this is a doctrine that for most Protestants, they bristled at. Because it was, it was a source of so much uh, corruption in the church. Not to go into details, but in the time of Martin Luther, there was a snake oil salesman going around named John Tetzel and said, hey, for $49.99, special deal for you, $49.99, um, which is a donation, um, not a payment, but a donation to help build St. Peter's Basilica. Not only can you no longer spend time in purgatory, but for seven days only, Boxing Day special, if you, if you pay another 29, if you donate, sorry, I keep saying pay, if you donate another 29.99, all your relatives can also get out of purgatory. 
And so John Tetzel had this, I'm not making this up, he had this little jingle that said, when the sound of the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Yes. Yes. It's true. Well, no, that's, that's what he said. Yeah, this, uh, this is historical, yeah. <laughs> but that's not true that that would happen, yes. Yeah, no, that's okay. So, for Protestants, they saw this, and they saw the corruption in the church, and this was a catalyst to a number of reformations. Okay? And so a lot of uh, Protestants, when we look at purgatory, that's where our mind goes, and we say, no, thank you. Martin Luther dealt with this, we're done. And truth be told, as a card-carrying evangelical, I do agree with Luther and the gang about the abuses and misuses of the, dogger, the doctrine of purgatory, and especially the Catholic Church's use of indulgences. It seems to contradict the gospel, the good news of the Bible, but there's still questions. And the questions have to do with sanctification. We'll come back to this. Is there a case that we can make for purgatory? Is there a case? C.S. Lewis once wrote, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said this, okay? <laughs> Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart if God said to us, it is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but are charitable here and there, and no one will upbraid you with, with these things nor draw away from you? Enter into the joy? Should we not reply, with submission, sir, and if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleansed first. It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir, cleanse me before I'm ready to be in your presence. That's what Lewis is saying. Because Lewis would say, heaven is where God is. Heaven is, 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 is the reign of God, the kingdom of God. And so it's a place of total perfection, full of light, beauty, goodness. Nothing impure or unclean can enter into this. Book of Hebrews reminds us that we must pursue peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So to be with the Lord, we need to be holy, right? You have to be without sin to stand before God. Okay, what does sin do? Well, sin disorders our mind, we become guilty before God, we become weak in our nature. And so then the question becomes, what is there between our rebirth, our conversion to faith, and glorification, the final stage, the final point? Between becoming a Christian and become fully, fully, the person we're meant to be, fully glorified. How do we go from rebirth, zero, to glorification, which is 100? Well, the process is sanctification. It's our training to become more and more to conform to the image of Christ. It's about preparing our hearts to see the lover of our soul face to face. But what happens if I die and I'm not fully sanctified? What do I do? So if you died and you're not fully sanctified, fully, completely over conformed to the image of Christ, what do you do? Well, typically there's a different choices. One, people will say, well, you know what? If you die, you go to heaven and you still have your sins. And so in fact, heaven is not sinless. And so Bob, We'll have a gun in heaven, and you know, but that that's not really an option. Two, some people say, well, we're lost, because if you die and you're not holy, then you can't stand before God, and so you are forever lost. Only the really holy people get in. That doesn't seem to be what the good news of the Bible is all about. Third option is we die, but hey, you have to make some, you have to make up for the sins that you still have lingering. And so that's where you get the Catholic understanding of purgatory. Or the other option is at the moment of death, God will make you 
instantaneously, immediately, through a unilateral act, no matter how sinful you were, you will become fully conformed to Christ. You will become the person who by faith, you, 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 you become the righteousness that Christ has placed upon you, upon, the, uh, upon faith. Or, the sanctification process continues after death. Now, here's the thing. You have to choose one of these. There's, these are your only options. And so, every one of us has to answer the question, how are the remains of our sin purged so that we can be completely holy in our character to spend eternity with God? Well, again, the satisfaction understanding of purgatory, we, I think we can say safely say that that does not reflect Scripture and it does not reflect, um, I, I think it, it, it undermines the work of the cross. I, I don't think the Catholic view holds any water. But sanctification is different. And that's where we're going to linger tonight. It's not about going to purgatory to pay off your sins. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about with purgatory tonight, we're talking about is purgatory a place, a holding place, where we can continue to be spiritually transformed until we're ready to stand face to face with Jesus. Again, this is a, a position that Dallas Willard hinted at, C.S. Lewis more than hinted at, and in many ways, is like you're saying, um, purgatory is like an incubator. It's where you put a premature baby because she needs to finish outside the womb what should have been completed when she was in the womb. So when we die, we're still in an immature state. We haven't matured into the persons we were created and redeemed to be, so purgatory thickens us. That's what Lewis says. It's a thickening process. And then when we're complete, we are fully in the presence of God. And so the, 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 behind the idea is that God's desire is always to make us holy. And yes, there are some very special people in history like Mother Teresa, Francis of Assisi, uh, Mike Lawson, and, and a few others. Um, <laughs> so, so why do we need to become holy? All right, we need to become holy so we can fully enjoy the presence of God. So let me just summarize, and then we're going to talk about We'll unpack this. Let me just summarize what, what, what I'm saying. If I was to summarize what we're saying about purgatory, it would look like this. One, purgatory is not a place of probation. It's not from where a soul could either go from heaven or hell. Uh, everyone who is in purgatory is heaven bound. So that's, it's often a mistake. A lot of people think purgatory is this punishing place before you go to hell. It's not. It's always, actually even within Catholicism, it's always for the saints. It's always for the saved. Two, purgatory is not a second chance for those who die unrepentant. The choices you make about Jesus in this life are binding to, at the point of death. Three, repentance even at the point of death is accepted. Four, and yet those who repent on their deathbed and this is a question that came up last, last week. Those who repent, and let's say they live just horrible lives, horrible, horrible, horrible lives. Let's say, um, you know, Joseph, we talked about it, Joseph Stalin lives a horrible life, you know, and just before he dies, he's like, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. Well, he's still going to have to go through a lot of transformation. Uh, he's going to become face to face with the depths of his sin, and, and need to be transformed. And this is going to take a long period of time. Okay, so, are you with the two? And I, don't, I know you, lots of questions. We, and we're gonna to touch on the questions next. But what I'd like you to do, for fun, 
is around the table to say, all right, how does this idea, the sanctification understanding of purgatory, not this Catholic satisfaction, but this, 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 this place where we'll continue to grow in our faith so that we're ready to see Jesus face to face, how does that idea sit with you? Is there really a case to be made for purgatory? Okay, so I want you to nicely and kindly around your table. Now, I'm saying this, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but also seriously, because this is, depending on your background, this is big stuff. I get it, right? So around your table, nicely and kindly say, hey, is there a case for purgatory? And if so, what would it be? And what, what concerns do you have? What questions come up? Okay, just take a few minutes to do that. And now we are back. So, lively conversation. That's good. And we will, um, we'll open it up to some questions at the end. What I want to do now is I want to explore some questions and try to anticipate some of the questions you may be asking. So, there are, let's look at the problems and puzzles of purgatory, three Ps. And some of these will be questions, objections, and responses. One, I've heard people say, come on, David, the blood of Jesus has paid it all, and therefore I am no longer under condemnation, and so I don't need to spend any time in purgatory. It is for freedom that Christ came to set me free. Galatians 5.1. Amen. Yes. I'm saved by... Grace through faith alone. My sins have been forgiven once and for all by Jesus on the cross. I don't need purgatory to make me fully clean or to perfect my relationship with God. Okay. I don't know. I think it's, it's, uh, that's, a, that's a good response. But just for fun, let's ask the question. Is there a difference between our sins being paid off and us still working through, not working off, not paying off, but working through our sinful tendencies. Sure, all my sins have been forgiven, but my heart is still pretty prone to sin. If I got hit by a truck tonight, and I am biking home, so I hopefully I won't get back. Um, but I, you know, I, you know, I, uh, this may come as a surprise. I'm not fully sanctified yet. I know, I know, you have many, yeah, thank you. Um, I still have a little ways to go, or a long ways to go. My heart is still fairly prone to sin. So, I, I still need now my heart to be transformed by sanctification, the process of sanctification. And I need a transformed heart so that I am a different person. Now, how does this happen? Three ways to see this, again. And one argument is that, okay, David, that, that, that full conformity to Christ will happen when you die. This is a unilateral, instantaneous, gracious act of God. When we see his face, as in 1 John 3 points out, when we see his face, we will be transformed. So that's one answer. Second answer would be this. Sin resides in the body. And we experience death. When we die, our soul, whatever that means, is pure and our soul is transformed and N.T. Wright, and I'm going to come back to him, says death itself gets rid of all that is sinful. This isn't magic but this is good theology. There's nothing left to purge. We'll talk about this more next week. Third answer would be this, well Christ's righteousness is imputed upon me, upon faith, I am saved by grace through faith, so when I die, of course, I become the person that I already am in Christ. The other way to see this is the fourth, is that the trauma of death is so bad that it is the experience that makes up the spiritual shortcomings prior to death. 
or it'll happen right after death, or it'll happen when I see Jesus, or it may take time to be transformed. So these are some of the ways you can respond. The second problem or puzzle is this. There are no passages in the Bible that support purgatory. And that's a very important thing to take into consideration. Even, even within Catholicism, in the Catholic understanding, there's no real passages that support purgatory. Well, there is a... There is a <laughs> I love, the, I love the way you put that. There is in, in Maccabees some potential, maybe, reference to, to, to purgatory, but within Catholicism, what has authority? Not only scripture, but a scripture and tradition and reason and experience. These things all go together, right? And so there is within Catholic tradition, certainly beginning with a guy like Augustine and carrying on through Aquinas and different things, you know, a pretty strong belief in purgatory. But as good evangelicals, we would say there is, there are no passages in Scripture that support purgatory. But you could say <laughs> that maybe it's an implication, or maybe it still makes logical sense, because you and I believe a lot of things that aren't explicitly laid out in Scripture. We all believe, for example, that Satan is a fallen angel, right? But there's no real scriptural support for that, but there's a logical support in the sense that if God created everything and it's good, and here you have Satan that is in opposition to God, then, okay, it makes sense that he maybe was once good, but no longer good, so fallen angel makes sense. So, right, we, we, can, we can come to these conclusions even if it's not explicitly laid out in Scripture. Can something be true but not have explicit scriptural support? All right, we'll keep coming back. Third, but David, come on. There are passages that completely rule out purgatory, like, for example, the thief on the cross, right? Today you will be with me in paradise, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.8. What do we come across? 2 Corinthians 5.8, we read these words. Um, yes, be of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Doesn't say hanging around purgatory. Right? So you got that. You got uh, Philippians. In, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 21, we come across these words. Um, chapter 1, verse 21. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then it says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better than to remain in the flesh. Okay. So this is another passage. First John 3, 2. I started with that. Now, this idea of paradise we're going to talk about next week. Because paradise and heaven are not the same thing. Tune in next week to find out more about that. But do these passages truly rule out purgatory? Well, they put a question mark around them. But the advocate of purgatory would still say that when you die, you are in the presence of Jesus. Purgatory is not a subcategory of hell but it's for the saved. And can you not be in the presence of Jesus and Jesus can carry on the work of transformation until it's completed? <laughs> and even in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, which I began with, and we said, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Does, is that full clarity instantaneous or could it take a period of time? Four, what do we do with our understanding of suffering and sanctification? Now, here's that. This is where this is a little tricky because we say when we suffer, when we experience suffering, we actually grow in our walk with Jesus. We potentially could grow. And many of you could give witness to that during the hardest times of your life were the times you grew the most in faith, right? You grew the closest to Jesus. Well, okay. Um, but here's a problem. If the suffering 
if in suffering we go through sanctification, if this is necessary, then why would it stop after we die? Why would, um, I mean, it's, it's, it is a mystery because it cuts both ways. Because if we die and we're in the presence of Jesus and there's, and there's no more suffering, no more tears, no, then, then we, we're not transformed. But maybe there's a place where we continue to experience not a different form of suffering and still be transformed. I don't know. There's lots of questions. <laughs> The other question is this, if our Christ-likeness is a long obedience in the same direction, if everything in the Bible says, you know what, the, your transformation, you need to be patient, the Christian life is a marathon, it's not a sprint, God is not in a hurry with you, he will transform you in his good time, and so carry on, walk with God, do not give up, do not, you know, grow faint-hearted, this is a, God's not finished with me yet, this is a long process. So why, if that's, God, if that's God's M.O., why is it that when we die, you say, okay, I got you. And you're, immediate, and you're immediately transformed. Where everything in life is slow. <laughs> it's a mystery. I, uh, I'm okay with that. Um, yeah. Uh, does purgatory help make sense with dead? Uh, well, we talked about deathbed conversions. We talked about this, but I, one example of this I'll give you, and you've heard me say this before. But I, I, you know, I once met with this guy who was dying of cancer, and I met with him, and he was, and he had no interest in God, no interest in Jesus, no interest in church at all. Never had, never went to church, nothing, complete atheist, and he was dying. And he only had like a day left or two days left. And I went to see him. And I said, man, when are you going to cry out to Jesus? And he cried out to Jesus. And so he died the next day. So if he is in the presence of Jesus and he's gone from zero to 100. And he's being completely transformed. Would he even recognize himself? Sure he would. Sure he would. Or maybe not. I mean, but that's the question, right? That, that's the question. Okay. Now, here's, to me, this is one of the biggest problems with purgatory. For us to grow in our faith, for us to be transformed, we do so as embodied beings. Our bodies matter. And part of my sanctification is not just my spirit being transformed. It's through hardship and through my life, through things that happen to my body, things I do to my body, you know, whether it be asceticism or different things that I do in order to grow in my walk with Jesus. I do this as a human being with a body. So if we die, and if purgatory is before the final judgment, before our resurrected bodies, then how are we sanctified without a body? If we're just souls without a body, and we're, we're, that's a topic that we're going to be covering next week, can I be sanctified? Can I grow in my faith without a body? See, aren't these fun questions? <laughs> now, now, you know, I'm, I'm being goofy, but... Um, Honestly, for us to ask these questions and to wrestle with these questions is really good for us. It's really good because it helps us to think through what we believe. Because so many times it's like, we just say this, and you're going to meet somebody on the street and they say, well, what about, how about, what happens? And if you think through these things, then you're going to be okay. So a final word about purgatory. Final word, and then we'll, we'll open up the questions. And so before you call our denomination, or just, you know, gather the pieces of wood and, and burn me in the parking lot, uh, along with my bi bicycle and all, um, let me lay out some final thoughts. <laughs> Ooh, it's getting hot in here. Uh, I, 
I think there is a logic to purgatory, and I hope I kind of threw you off a little bit because my guess is that many of you have never heard a case for purgatory that kind of actually has a certain logic to it. I'm doing that just to help you think. And I get it, it does raise questions. So let me just leave you with this couple things. When it comes to purgatory, first off, no to a Catholic understanding of purgatory as being satisfaction for our sins. I think Jesus paid it all on the cross, no room for that. No to actually finding any scriptural support. I don't think there's any scriptural support for the doctrine of purgatory. And I think we need to pay attention to that. Purgatory is in the realm of speculation. It's not unreasonable speculation, but it's still speculation. The other thing that should concern us is very, very few Protestant theologians support the idea of purgatory. I know some, but not many. And as much as I love C.S. Lewis, he wasn't a theologian. He wasn't. I mean, he's, he's, he's many things. He's a philosopher. He's a, um, a professor of literary, of, of medieval uh, literature. Um, so we need to pay attention. The other one guy who has done a lot of thinking about heaven and hell and the meaning of eternity is none other than, than this fellow here, N.T. Wright. Has anybody ever read his Surprise by Hope? No? Has anybody read that? Wow. Yeah, of course, yeah. It's, it's actually mandatory reading for the Alliance, for our denomination, for ordination. Yeah, you need to read this. Um, it's, it's brilliant, Surprise by Hope. And um, it's a really interesting book. And so one of the things uh, N.T. Wright says about purgatory is this. Can you borrow it? For $25, yeah, you can, no. <laughs> yes, you can borrow it, yeah. Okay, um, let me just, a couple things that he says. Um, where am I here? Okay. Um, he says, you know what? In the Bible, there is no differentiation between different levels of saints. You have to realize that. So this idea of purgatory for those who are less sanctified and, you know, as opposed to, you know, again, Mike, St. Mike Clausen, who is already there, but other people aren't there. This idea of differentiating between our sanctification in the afterlife really doesn't show up in Scripture. It kind of runs up against what the Bible teaches, that, you know, we're all in the same boat. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us need a Savior. And even the people in Corinth are still nevertheless called saints. And so this idea, uh, it runs, uh, this idea of purgatory runs against so much of Scripture that emphasizes that the least becomes the greatest and the greatest becomes the least, that we're all in this together. N.T. Wright would argue that the process of death really is what rids us of all that is sinful. When we die, there's nothing left to purge. He would say Christ has done it on the cross. And then he says this, and I think this is an, a, an intriguing idea. He says, why are we drawn to the idea of purgatory? He says, because this life that we live now is purgatory. This is where we grow in our faith. This is where we are transformed. This time here and now is where we are going to be transformed more and more into Christ's image. So he says, the reason why people kind of had this idea of purgatory is probably they're mapping our own call in this life now into the afterlife. Okay? And so, yeah, I think Wright, and Wright's a heavyweight thinker. He's a heavyweight scholar, biblical scholar and theologian. So I'm going to pause there. I'm going to put, as, as, as a lot of our, my uh, younger colleagues say, I'm going to put a pin in this. And, uh, and I'm going to, because we've had some fun questions, right? So let me give you a few more fun questions, okay? A few more fun questions. Um, one of the things we're going to be talking about next week, and this is a fun question, <laughs> is, there an in, is there an intermediate state between when we die and when we receive our resurrected bodies? So is there that middle point? What happens right after we die? Where do we go? And what do I mean by we? Who am I? 
Am I my soul? Am I what? Like, what is this? Now, that's a big question, and we are going to be tackling that question next week. Yes, and I have invited someone way smarter than me to take it on. <laughs> My dear friend, uh, Pet Petro Kovalev, who's a, a PhD in theology, professor from Ukraine. He's also teaching here. So um, if you were part of our men's breakfast, you heard uh, Petro speak before. Yeah. So, yeah, because I say, hey, do you want to teach? And then I just gave him the hardest week. So I appreciated that. <laughs> Though the following week is, how does the world end? And Mike's taken that on, so I appreciate that. So I kind of dumped some of these on, uh, on, on my dear friends. Um, so the other question is this, what, okay, what happened to those between the fall, Genesis 3, and Christ's atonement? So the Old Testament people, the Old Testament covenant people, w what happened to them? Where are they? Where were they? <laughs> In the tomb, <laughs> yeah. Well, one answer, and we'll talk about this next week, is about this idea of Sheol or Hades. But there's another thought that I want to throw out to you, and that is the thought of limbo. Limbo, right? <laughs> How low can you go? Limbo, okay. What, what in the world is limbo? Have you heard of limbo? How many? You've heard the expression, oh, I'm out in limbo. What, what is limbo? Yes, you were taught that it was for babies that die. Yes, interesting. Um, it is for the innocent or the saintly departed before Jesus. And so you have to realize this. This shows up in the Catholic Church, but it, it is not actually an official doctrine. It's not an official doctrine. So what is limbo? Limbo emerges as a placeholder for the justice and mercy of God for several classes of people who seem not to deserve to go to hell when they die, but also don't really, can't really go to heaven. <laughs> and so what is limbo, the way it's described, is not really a bad place, but it's not a great place. It's kind of like, again, like an airport waiting room, right? Uh, the food is okay, the buffet is a bit cold, you get pop, fluorescent lights, it's okay, but it's not great, okay? Limbo emerges in the Middle Ages, and it emerges probably as a pastoral concern. So who is in limbo? Maybe the Old Testament believers are. They're waiting for Christ. Maybe limbo. It is for also the unbaptized infants or people who would be called spiritual incompetence. So people who do not have the capacity through mental illness or whatever to respond to the gospel. It is for the unevangelized faithful. So people who have not heard of the gospel, but you know what, they're so such nice people surely they couldn't be going to hell. And often in, in, in history, it was, it was, it was a, um, a place for, you know, guys like Plato and Aristotle, who are just like brilliant, and you can't, they can't go to hell. They, look, they kind of gave ideas that's, that, you know, Christianity fulfilled in some ways. And so guys like Plato, Aristotle, poets, Virgil, Homer, Socrates, the inventors of Krispy Kreme donuts, all these people who have done great things, right? How could they go to hell? And so it solves the problem of good, kind people who have never heard of the gospel. Now, you see what's happening here. There's lots of questions. And it's important because... Somebody's going to ask you this. What happens to a baby? Now, if you're Eastern Orthodox, you don't believe in original sin. So you probably have a, well, they're probably, you know, God's merciful to them. But in the West, even Protestant and Roman Catholic, we believe in original sin, saying, you know, when a baby's born, there are some, so what if they die? And, and so you're wrestling with this. And I'm just telling you this because these are questions that people will ask you. And so you have to think it through. 
And so one of the ways we responded to this, and, 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 and you'll, you'll, I think you'll, you'll like this. I mean, it's in, in the back of our mind, here's a question for you. How old do you have to be in order to be responsible for your choices? What, what is the age of majority where you are now the wages of sin is death? How old do you have to be? Interest, seven years. Yeah. Now, there is some historical weird thing about seven years, yeah? How old do you have to be? So let's say, for example, a seven-year-old, or like, let's say a six-year-old, um, you know, just a tragic death. They never asked, they didn't even hear of Jesus. Never gave their life to Jesus. So what happens to them? Now, every one of us in our gut of guts would say, they've got to be okay. Okay, so, oh yeah, right. So what about a seven-year-old? Okay, eight-year-old? Yeah. How about a 14-year-old? A 15-year-old? At what point do you, at what point do you enter the age of accountability? Like, this is a really important question, isn't it? Now, we all in the back of our head probably think, oh, I'm probably 12 or 13 years old. But there's no scriptural support for that. And so a lot of, you know, the church has wrestled with this. And so one of the ways it wrestled with this is said, all right, if they're not old enough, then they probably go to limbo. <laughs> um, or they probably get a second chance. Or, or what? In, in Protestants, we say, well, okay, until they hit a certain age, they're covered by their parents' faith. That's one, one thing that we've thought about. And what if the parents, yeah, aren't our faith, yeah. What about those outside the church? Now, here's the thing. These are, are really important questions, right? These answers that I've given you, they're the best that the church over 2,000 years has come up with. This is all we got. We don't know. We don't know. There is no teaching in the Bible about the age of accountability. But it just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And if the issue was making sure that an infant was baptized or they were going to go to hell, I think if that was, I mean, that's an important issue. I think that would show up in the Bible a few times. We don't come across it. It just points at those who can return, respond to the gospel. Okay, so this is one of the ways I approach this. And we have to get this. And you know this. God is not a machine. And Christianity is not a mechanism. It's not a process. If this, then this. God is personal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We read that he is love. And, and, and that, that he will do what is right. And so we have to get this. Because what happens is we fall into this. If this, then this. If not this, then what about this? What about maybe we have this doctor? We try to figure it out. But the reality is that um, there's not a lot said on this. Now, there's some things, and there's some mystery things. Oh, boy, we got some mystery things. You know, the transfiguration, right? Who's there? Who's at the transfiguration? Moses and who else? Were they? Who? Embodied? How? The witch of Endor raises up who? Samuel. Was that Samuel? Was it his ghost? Was that his spirit? Was that his soul? Where was he raised up from? Yeah, those big questions, right? <laughs> really big questions. But what we hold on to, and, and this is where we have to hold on to the big T truths. We wrestle with these because they force us to think these things through. We really do need to think them through because I guarantee you, your neighbor who has zero faith background will throw these questions your way. And so we need to at least wrestle with them. See, James. We need to wrestle with them. And so I want to leave you, um, again, um, 
I want to leave you with um, a passage, but we are going to dive a little bit deeper next week because I think there's, there are a few more things that we can say. Uh, and next week's going to be super interesting, especially as we dive into soul and spirit and some of those things. Um, but I want to leave you um, with a passage that I think I, I think that ought to uh, speak into our hearts. Paul writes these words. He says, therefore, in, in, in Romans 8, he says, therefore now, there is thou, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And we need to remember that God is a God who sets us free. And then, and then he says this, he says, Paul says, he says, um, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then at the very end of the chapter, he says, what can we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we allow the main thing to remain the main thing. Does that make sense? Okay. Lord, we do pray that you would grant us wisdom and discernment as we wrestle with the mysteries of reality, of life, death, afterlife, and our final place. And so speak to us, we pray. Grant us charity with one another. And help us to cling to the big T truths of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.